You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, UFC 205 is in the books. Woo! How'd you do? Did you survive? I made it. I charged right through it, you might even say. Yeah, this was, uh, this was one that didn't feel like work. No, it did I guess not. You would say. Even when they tried to make it feel like work by sprinkling in advertisements for future events, they're like, God damn it, how much of our money do you need? All of it. All the money. Uh, this also was an event, I guess we should tell the listeners right up front, that completely befuddles the normal co main event podcast uh, format. Just throws into disarray. Just too much shit. It's chaos. Hashtag too much shit going on. Good problem to have. We can't, uh, we're not going to do our normal three round or five round uh, format here. We're going to fly by the seat of our pants. Keep it flowy is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Maybe we should just go ahead and dedicate this episode uh, to Conor McGregor. Get some pool noodles in here. And we'll just, uh, we're going to keep it flowy. It's going to be a very free form seat of the pants uh, roller coaster ride for the co-main event podcast. We don't even know how long it's going to go. No. That's... I expect that I'll just black out and I'll, I'll wake up and it'll be Thursday and I'll still be sitting here talking to this microphone. It could be. That could be how it goes. Uh, so, yeah, we're just going to have a very free-form discussion about the litany of things that we feel like require our attention in the wake of UFC 205 and the week of uh, this coming Saturday when there are going to be another two. It's another one of those funky days when there are two UFC events. In one day. So back to feeling like work is what you're saying? Back to feeling like work, although I guess with WME IMG now in charge, there's reason to perhaps hope that this is the last time that there are two UFC events in one day. It seems like that's the way they're trending. Well, you are an optimist, my friend, and I like that about you. Well, I got to try to keep my head up somehow. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by Fulton & Rourke. Fulton & Rourke is a men's grooming company that thoughtfully creates products based on the way guys get ready. Each of their products is built around fragrance and function, designed to make getting ready less of a boring routine and more of an enjoyable ritual. Their solid cologne smells great and is designed to go anywhere you do, from your gym bag to your carry-on even your pants pocket. That's right, Chad. And this week, there's some exciting news from the guys at Fulton & Rourke. Turns out their no-foam shave cream just won GQ's grooming award for being the best shave cream out there. Now, if you'll recall, that's something we've been saying for a while now because the no-foam shave cream cuts down on razor friction and the formula of avocado oil and tea tree replenishes the moisture lost from shaving. So basically, once you start using it, you can never go back to whatever sludge you were smearing on your stupid face before. The shave cream is one of my favorite Fulton & Rourke products, as is their long-lasting bar soap, which is basically a great-smelling brick of excellence. It's formulated with a blend of Moroccan red clay and oats and designed to gently exfoliate, while the combination of eucalyptus, black spruce, and sage nourish your skin. Yeah, and as ever, Comb Event podcast listeners are in line for extra savings from Fulton & Rourke. If this GQ award doesn't convince you to give their stuff a try, man, I just I don't know what to say to you. But if you're interested, you can go to Fulton and Rourke, that's R-O-A-R-K dot com, and use the code C-M-E for 15% off your total purchase. 
Another item that might be of interest, although I know those of you who already have them will mock us, but those of you that don't may be interested to know that Dundasso t-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts are back. No way. part of Cotton Bureau's huge holiday rollout. Now, for the holiday season, Cotton Bureau has cut down the requirement, the number, required number of sales that they have to make before they put the shirt actually back into print from 12 until 6. 12 to 6. So if we get six orders, uh, everyone who bought them get their shirts. And uh, there's some kind of deadline on there where if you want to get them for the holidays, you got to order by then. Uh, the sale, as usual, runs for, I think, 15 days, and then uh, it goes away. Are you still going to try to play this limited this time offer probably bullshit? Probably the last one. <laughs> probably look, a limited time the offer. The look in your eyes is just, it, like, that's the picture of dishonesty right there. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me this week? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Dave MacArthur. And he writes, picture this, you're Misha Tate's career advisor. She's done commentary for Fox. Jim Ross sent a congratulatory tweet saying she'd be perfect for WWE. She's done a red boxy action film, and a lot of people are even doubting she'll stay on the MMA sidelines. Uh, she's only 30, still quite marketable, probably hasn't made Ronda Rousey money, and needs work. Where do you think she goes from here? That's a good question. Man. It is a good here, question. Uh, and I like to imagine myself as Misha Tate's career advisor. That yeah. seems like a role I'd fit right into. Misha Tate, kind of unexpectedly, I guess, uh, just because there wasn't any warning in the lead-up to this particular event, although Misha Tate has talked about being near the end of her career before, but she went ahead and announced her retirement at UFC 205 after her unanimous decision loss to Raquel Pennington. Uh it felt right to me to see Misha Tate walk away at this juncture in her career, but also uh, it kind of made me think that the women's bantamweight division is losing a lot of, uh, or is at least at risk of losing a lot of the like the recognizable faces that that were there as it was being built. Because you know, as everyone who I'm sure is listening to this knows. Uh, there's rumors out there that Ronda Rousey only has one fight left in her, maybe a couple more, and then she'll be gone. So she's gone. Misha Tate will be gone. Uh, it's a whole new world at women's bantamweight, and it remains to be seen exactly who rises up to become the new recognizable faces, I guess you could say. Yeah, I'm interested in the part of this question that says, you know, a lot of people are even doubting she'll stay on the MMA sidelines. I always have that doubt when the person is, you know, not super old, not getting absolutely trashed out there on their fights. You know, she lost a decision. She didn't look great. She looked a little uncomfortable and like she just really couldn't get going. But it wasn't like she got just beat up uh, the way we've seen some aging legends do. And she announced it right in the cage right afterwards and said that basically it was because of the result, which I can understand, especially if you already feel like you've taken some beatings. And Misha Tate has. Even in fights she wins, she's taken some beatings just because that's the kind of style she has. But... If you say like, okay, hey, if I if I had won this, I would have kept going, and you retire right then while the disappointment and the bummer is still pretty fresh, that doesn't always stick. You know, we've seen that before. I would not be terribly surprised if six months or a year down the road she starts to feel like actually took some time off, the body's feeling good again, maybe I still got more fights in me. Yeah, especially because she's only thirty years old, uh, and, and you know hasn't taken a ton of punishment inside the cage, uh, even though she is she has had twenty four, twenty five fights. Uh, 
if she does stay away, and I do want to answer the actual question that, that Dave MacArthur asked us here, but I, I also just want to say I feel like Misha Tate's career is one of those ones that will look better in retrospect than yeah. maybe we gave it credit for as Absolutely. it was happening, just because of the dominant presence of Ronda Rousey and because Misha Tate lost to her twice, because she's closing out her career on the heels of back-to-back losses and finished out her strike force career uh, just one and three. But or no, I'm sorry, one and two, and then she lost to Ronda Rousey in the UFC. Uh, I think that we will look back fondly on Misha Tate as like the second most famous and most promotable, most marketable person in this division, you know, as it was being built up around Ronda Rousey. Uh, I'm glad that Misha Tate can walk away as both a former Strike Force champion and a former UFC champion. Uh, Misha Tate has always seemed like one of the good people in the sport, so... Uh, I hope that she walks away comfortably and I'm glad that she has those accolades in her back pocket uh, that, you know, I'm sure she will be very proud of as her life moves forward. And I think that we will look back on her and be like, yeah, man, Misha Tate, like she was good at media. She was she was fun to watch on the cage. She had that knack of kind of coming back to snatch victory uh, from the jaws of defeat when it seemed like things weren't going her way. I feel like we will we will grow to love Misha Tate more as, you know, maybe maybe as she becomes uh you know, d- d- distinctive by her absence. Um, by the way, she has way more strike force victories than you gave her credit for. She- no, I said she finished her career in strike force. Like her last three fights in strike force, she went one and three. Okay. And then went to the UFC, lost to Ronda Rousey, but had a win streak and then finished out. Oh, and two. I didn't Middle mean to Ross- say she went one and I didn't mean to say one and two was her total strike force. She went two and one in her last three fights in strike force. The one was Ronda Rousey. Um, she beat Marlos Conan for the title, immediately lost the title to Ronda Rousey. Then she had that great fight with Julie Kedzie where she got kicked upside her head. Oh, you're right. And you're still right. pulled off an arm bar. You're and right. that one is a good example of what I'm talking about when I say even in fights she won, she took a beating a lot of times just because of her kind of approach. She was a real grinder. And also her ability, like when you're known for, as you say, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat, it means that for a lot of the fight, things were not going well for you. Uh, and that fight was particularly an awesome one. But I think people kind of forget, like in our narrative, it goes, Ronda Rousey came along and changed Dana White's mind, and that's why women's MMA made it to the UFC, which... I'm not saying that that's untrue, but it maybe gives Ronda Rousey too much of the individual credit. Because as you'll recall, the real breakout fight was that Ronda Rousey-Misha Tate strike force title fight the first time they met. And that was the one where they did the ads on Showtime where they were coming down the, the stairs in evening gowns. Remember that one? Right, yeah. And it was like, that's where you could see the UFC looking at it and going, there's potential here. I, if you can do this, maybe maybe you can work with it. So I think that she she deserves some credit for being a part of that. As you said about what you would advise her to do with her career next, um, you know, maybe the WWE is not a terrible idea for Misha Tate. I wonder if she has basically the acting chops to pull it off. Uh, I would also, from what I've seen, her her acting chops are kind of red boxy. And uh, in in pro wrestling, you actually got to know how to how to pull that stuff off. I mean, you mentioned that she's she got. She will be remembered for being good at media. And I feel like as someone who talked to her a lot over the years, she got good at media. Like she got much better at it over time. So maybe that's one of those things that she can work on and improve at. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that I wonder about is we – I don't feel like we have a terrific grasp on Misha Tate, the individual, and what her private life is like. I mean, I know – 
we know that she is in a long-term relationship with Brian Caraway, but at the same time, with one of those WWE jobs, the thing you always got to wonder is, does the person want to have that schedule? Uh, because unless Misha Tate could, you know, land some kind of, uh, uh, easy Brock Lesnar style part-time schedule, which maybe they would be willing to do for her, but who knows? Uh, though that WWE life is hard, man. Those people are on the road almost all the time. Uh, and I just don't know if that's something that Misha Tate would want to do as she gets into her early and mid thirties, or if she's more of a Tacoma, Washington homebody. And if she just wants to stay there and, and, uh, you know, I assume that she could probably have a decent career as a coach, uh, slash, you know, gym owner in that area. Uh, she's been there a long time. Well, they're in Vegas now, right? Her and Brian Caraway, right? Extreme Couture. Yeah, but I would think that, that wouldn't you think that, well, I mean, maybe you have a larger population of fighter to grow on or to, to capitalize on in Vegas, but like, I would think that the Seattle Tacoma area would be where her, her fan support would be and where like Misha Tate's MMA would thrive. You know, maybe less, maybe less competition there. Uh, I would just say, based on everything I've seen uh, in my travels, if you're thinking my my future fortune will be built upon owning an MMA gym, you know, think again. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and then Dave MacArthur also brings up uh, the idea that she could do, you know, more work as a commentator, which I think would be a great role for Misha Tate. But like we say every single time this happens, not everybody can do that. Like, there's just not enough jobs. So. Uh, you and know, not everybody is as good as it as they think they're going to be. You know, you look at somebody like Brian Stan, and you're like, okay, he I think makes it look too easy to some of those people sometimes, and they don't see the ton of work that he puts in it in in terms of preparation for this. And you know, when you when you already got a Brian Stan, how many more of those fighter commentators do you really need? Even when there's tons of UFC broadcasts. I just don't know if the demand is quite that high. Right. Misha Tate, I guess, brings to the table experience in the women's divisions. Uh, and I don't know that they have a woman who sits uh, regularly on the Fox Sports Fighter broadcast. You're uh, saying they could use a little diversity? Position. I mean, if if they need someone to come in and, and with that area of expertise and, and uh, you know, bring a different perspective to the broadcast table, maybe so. Who knows? Not a bad idea. Uh, Misha Teresa Tate. Announces her retirement. Got to sneak that middle name in there, don't you? Next question this week comes from Curtis Bouchard. He writes, what must we sacrifice to the MMA gods to get Connor versus Nurmi? Can you imagine the buildup, let alone the fight itself? I will pour a can of Zions on my UFC 161 t-shirt and burn it if I have to. Well, let's hope that's not necessary. Yeah. Let's hope it doesn't get to that point. Curtis, keep your, keep your gear, man. So... Your boy Nurmi, yep. Khabib Nurmagomedov, he goes out there and he gets kind of touched up a little bit in the early going against Michael Johnson, and then just mauls him, mauls him like yep. I, I I think I described it on Twitter as like when they at the end of uh, I believe it was the end of the second round where uh, uh, Khabib is kind of getting off of him and Michael Johnson's leaning up there against the fence, bloodied up, beaten up, and the look on his face is like he has been attacked by a large, angry dog, and he's looking around to see where the owner is and why he's not coming to get this thing. Uh, you could tell that he was just overwhelmed after some early success there. And according to Habib, he told he was telling him in the fight, you know, you got you to gotta quit, basically. I don't want to keep beating you up if I don't have to. So you got to, like, and here's, here's the actual quote. This is some cold-blooded shit, Chad. 
This is from somebody asking uh, Nurmagomedov afterwards, what did you say to him? I had a little talk with him. Is that not good? I told him, hey, I have to fight for the title. You know this. I told him, I don't want to smash your face, and I already beat you. You have to give up. But he kept fighting. Cold-blooded. Yeah. Uh, I believe I tweeted that Nurmagomedov solidified his place on my list of most terrifying 155-pound men ever to live. Uh, and I, I still feel that way about this performance against Michael Johnson, where Habib improved his record to 24-0. and On the topic of Conor McGregor versus Nurmagomedov, uh, I do think that's something that we should talk about a little bit. I don't know how much it will come up later once we get into the meat of Conor McGregor versus Eddie Alvarez, but I do agree that Nurmagomedov against Conor McGregor is a delicious stylistic matchup, not only because... Habib is strong where we feel McGregor might be the weakest and because McGregor is strong where we think Nurmagomedov might be the weakest. Uh, and also because of that mauling, like chillingly effective ground and pound style that Nurmagomedov has would certainly, uh, create some, some issues for Conor McGregor, I think. Uh, and also, you know, like Curtis Bouchard says in this email, the lead up would be outstanding. Yes, it Cause would. Cause after, you know, Nurmagomedov returned this year and fought twice after missing all of 2015, uh, and then fighting only once during 2014. And I feel like at UFC 205, he really brought it. Like he understood what kind of stage this was for him, even though he fought only on the preliminaries. Uh, and he brought the whole Nurmagomedov character marketing guy to the fore yeah, in did. everything that he did. Also, I believe uh, yelling at the UFC president between rounds, like as he was on the stool, I think is the report I saw, yeah. telling Dana White not to bring him any more bullshit contracts. <laughs> I heard that one too. And I think it seemed like kind of a heel turn for him, like a delightful heel turn for him in that interview afterwards. I want to fight your chicken. I want to fight your chicken. And then comparing the populations of Ireland and Russia – I'm not exactly sure what the point of that exercise was. It was as if he felt like, you know what, maybe these people just haven't done the math to figure out that I am the guy who should have the title and has like the biggest possible population to uh, appeal to. So let me just reel off some population stats where I compare this like very large geographically expansive country to an island nation. Uh, and as if people would hear that and be like, oh, actually, that checks out. Yeah, no, we got to give him the title shot now. Uh, and then amid the booze, launching into a prayer, basically, and then returning again to talk about how he wants to fight the chicken. Uh, I mean, that was just pretty much perfect for like we talked we've talked before and people always ask about like hey, fighters who don't speak great English. Is that like a, an impediment to their marketability, to them rising through the ranks and becoming like a, a big money fighter. And then you see him where, you know, he doesn't speak the Queen's English basically, but he gets, he gets his point across in such an effective way with the English that he does speak. I love the hell out of it. Yeah. He's really good. And I feel like he can tap into almost like a childhood uh, vision. Like you said, heel character. I feel like he can almost tap into a Nikolai Volkov slash iron Sheik a little mid bit of 80s, Ivan Drago. Yeah, like mid-80s Cold War villain uh, persona in, 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 like, in our own minds. Yeah, and we're headed that way again. So, hey, let's, let's, we might as well have that. You know, he, he's, he's coming about at the right time for, for the U.S.-Russia rivalry rebirth. He, yeah, or the, the uh, historical partnership. Uh, 
Well, the thing that I think makes a fight between Nurmagomedov and Conor McGregor so compelling uh, is even though Nurmagomedov is so suffocating and good on the ground, it's not an open and shut case by any means because no. he has a tendency to get a little reckless on the feet. And you saw that in this fight against Michael Johnson, where really early on Johnson was able to have some success and was able to uh, you know, touch him up a little bit on the feet. And then obviously the grappling took over. Uh, clearly, after what we saw this weekend in the main event of UFC 205, uh, you cannot afford to get touched up a little bit on the feet by a guy who throws uh, with the thunder of Conor McGregor. Uh, and we'll talk about that more, I think, coming up. But like, that's the th- that's one of the many things that would make me uh, hyped for a Nurmagomedov-McGregor fight would be that kind of contrasting of styles and the fact that I think they both could be vulnerable to the other guy's skills. Now, will we ever see it? Probably not. You know, I don't know about that we'll never see it, but if you're the UFC in this situation, wouldn't there be a part of you that feels like maybe putting Nurmi in there with your cash cow is bad for business? And I think if you were Conor McGregor, you would probably feel that way too. Not necessarily. I mean, I'm sure that Conor McGregor believes that he can starch Nurmagomedov the way he starches everybody else. But at the same time, if you're Conor McGregor, you kind of got bigger fish. Uh, at least in front of you in the in the interim, uh, whenever you come back from from easing into fatherhood, uh, I, I would think that he's going to have some other uh, priorities on his mind before Habib Nurmagomedov can be at the top of the list. Interestingly enough, though, uh, on the article I wrote the, my my Conor McGregor post fight piece on Bleacher Report, I was surprised to see that the super scientific internet poll that was embedded in my story about who Conor McGregor should fight next, Nurmagomedov kind of dominated. Uh, compared to all of the other likely And who else was choices. in there? Tony Ferguson? Uh, no, not Tony Ferguson, but like uh, uh, Nate Diaz, uh, Tyron Woodley. Uh, Tyron Woodley. Tyron Woodley's in there and Tony Ferguson isn't in your poll. Are you questioning the like the validity of the poll? Yeah, well, I'm questioning the wisdom of the poll maker. Well, uh, I, I don't remember all of the people that, that were listed. I just know that uh, Nurmagomedov was up there around 40%, dominating everybody else. There was four or five choices. Uh, and I was surprised to see that. I thought that, you know, we serve, a, the, we serve the casual fan over there uh, at our enormous, like, broad-based sports website. So I was surprised to see that Nurmagomedov uh, got more votes than, than somebody like Nate Diaz. Now, was it Russian hackers? I don't know. It might have been. <laughs> They're very active on the Internet, from what I hear. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Patrick Cooper. He says, with all this other shit going down, could you spare some discourse for James Andrew Miller and Frank James Edgar, who both picked up nice wins, and how you see the rest of their careers going? Uh, especially as it pertains to Frankie Edgar, I feel like this is an interesting question because, you know, with the result of the main event, now you have Conor McGregor, the first man to simultaneously hold uh, two UFC titles in different weight classes. One of those, obviously, is the featherweight title where Frankie Edgar fights. But you also have an interim champion down there in Jose Aldo uh, who has been angling for a fight with Conor McGregor. Now that it seems certain that McGregor is going to take at least the, like maybe the first half of 2017 off and Aldo seems uh, per, you know, almost exclusively interested in a fight with Conor McGregor and says he will not fight again if he doesn't get that fight, uh, it leaves the featherweight division in the lurch, I guess you could say. And are they going to let McGregor just hold on to both those belts indefinitely, even though he doesn't really have any announced plans to go back to 145 pounds? Or would you strip the guy and then, you know, 
have to crown a new champion, in which case, if Aldo is also MIA, then maybe surprisingly, Frankie Edgar finds himself right back in the hunt. Yeah, but what does that do to the overall state of the division? It, once you have to, whenever you are taking more legitimate choices as champions away from people and you get, you just take the belt and give it to somebody else because the other person's not active enough or for various business reasons that you don't like, you don't really give them the real championship. You don't really give them the legitimacy that goes with it. You're just kind of giving them a trinket and it doesn't necessarily mean people are going to buy it or that people are going to be excited about seeing them defend a belt that they don't feel like they won in the first place. So I, it's not quite that easy for them. And I, it does present a whole lot of problems. And, you know, what Frank Yeager has said is that if Conor McGregor is not going to be around at 145, and it seems increasingly likely that he will not, then he's going to think about 135. And honestly, when you saw him in the cage with Jeremy Stevens, you know, even when he's like taking Jeremy Stevens down and it looks like somebody's skilled little brother is out there like figuring out how to haul uh, uh, the, the older brother down and can't quite keep him there most of the time. You look at that and you start to feel like, okay, 135 might be the place where Frank Yeager can yeah, finally pick on someone's own size. I mean, I know Jeremy Stevens is a former lightweight and a big featherweight, but it's crazy how Frank Yeager always manages to look tiny. Yeah. Like no matter who he's fighting. Uh, also crazy that he used to be the lightweight champion. Yeah. And a good lightweight champion at that. But, uh, as I said uh, over the weekend, I felt like it's weird to see Frankie Edgar in a three round fight. I feel like three rounds is, is, you know, I, I just get my, my, my taste wetted for Frankie Edgar after three. His nose just starts bleeding <laughs> after three rounds, even when he's getting kicked right in his face. Uh, and I felt like kind of, even though he won this Jeremy Stevens fight, I felt like kind of a sinking feeling in my, in my chest as I watched it. Cause I felt like watching Frankie Edgar in this fight was one where you're like, Oh, he doesn't look right. He's kind of, he doesn't seem to like have the amazing spring in his step that he normally does. Those crazy takedowns that he normally launches didn't seem quite as fast. Uh, he didn't seem quite as elusive with the boxing combinations. So then it almost made you feel good to see him come out afterward and be like, yeah, I tore my ACL and had to get like basically a spinal injection uh prior to this fight uh because because then it was like oh well maybe he wasn't just looking you know 34 years old out there yeah jesus christ that is crazy too that you went through all that and you still showed up on fight night i mean i i think that's the kind of thing that uh makes you realize these guys when they sign that contract to fight and the people who actually do pull out it's not because of something minor when most of these guys tell you that they can't fight. I think sometimes we have a tendency to treat it that way. You hear somebody pulled out, especially if it's somebody who you think has a reputation for, for pulling out of fights, and you think, oh, man, here we go again. And when you hear somebody who went through stuff like that just to stay on the fight card, man, that puts some shit in perspective. Uh, and then Jim Miller, I think we just touched on briefly, he beat the incredibly overweight Tiago Alves uh, in the fight pass featured prelim on UFC 205. I think we've talked about this with Jim Miller before, that it seems like Jim Miller will be one of those dudes who can hang around having great, exciting fights in the UFC basically as long as he wants to. He doesn't seem like a guy that's suddenly going to jump up and become the champion or even be a top contender, but he kind of has a niche there yeah. and uh you know for a dude like jim miller that's that's not necessarily a bad role to have no and it's not necessarily he's not a bad guy to have around if you're trying to run your own uh over-the-top streaming service and you got yourselves your i mean here he is again he was on the uh prelims doing basically the same role on ufc 200 
Uh, he's one of those guys where he still feels like a name. You know he's going to bring some excitement. Um, but you can get him on the fight pass, and it's a reason for the hardcores to sign up. Last question this week comes from that dude, Duncan, who writes, I feel like my UFC 205 hangover has barely lifted, and I look up to find not one but two more UFC fight night shows booked for next Saturday and another for the Saturday after that. Help. Is there anything worth watching on these, or can I just slip back into obliviousness until Ronda comes back on December 30th? That's a good question. Uh, man, when I remembered fairly recently that there is an actual event headlined by, you know, the like just seeing the words UFC Fight Night Bader versus Noguera 2, I, I, I felt a fatigue wash over me, Chad. Just like, like somebody, you know, when you put that two on there, something about that gets even more depressing because I was like, oh, yeah, I guess there was a first one. And here we go again. And that's the main event. Yeah. Uh, Ryan Bader versus Lil Nog is going to be that is the UFC event that will come to us from uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil. The same day, there's another UFC fight night headlined by Gegard Mousasi versus Uriah Hall, too. Two. Also a. Uh, a sequel fight. At least uh, that sequel makes some damn sense. And that one comes to us from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. This, the Belfast card is only on fight pass. Do we know about the Sao Paulo card? Is that going to be on FS one or I, b- I believe that's FS one. Yeah. Uh, these things tail off in a hurry because Gegard Musasi versus Uriah Hall seems like a, a good, uh, and, and worthwhile fight. But then, you know, when you got Timothy Johnson, man on the, the man on the street build, the guy who looks very much like the cop who comes to your house uh, when you call in to report a stray dog, uh, he's on the card. He's fighting Alexander Volkov, uh, who was, uh, you know, the former Bellator fighter. And you've also got Ross Pearson against Stevie Ray. Oh, I assume you, it was uh, Booker T's former tag team partner in Harlem Heat and WCW. Uh, so yeah, I think there's some hard decisions that are going to have to be made. Don't gloss over the people's main event in this one, Artem Lobov versus our dude, Teruto Ishihara. Yeah, that's on there too. That's a uh, main card, main card curtain jerker. Uh, I'm just saying if you are, you know, that dude Duncan and you are out here trying to figure out how to budget your time, I might tell you this weekend, maybe not so important spend some time with the family, come back next weekend to watch Robert Whitaker fight Derek Brunson which I feel like is a uh, a really good middleweight contender fight, which is also going to be on a fight night uh, event. Uh, that one from Australia. Boy, they're really still making the rounds, aren't they? Uh, well, the enjoy that while it lasts. On November 27th. Uh, this next weekend, even though two UFC events, I don't know, man. If you're suffering from any kind of fatigue, you might just want to save your money for UFC 206 and save your time for uh, your wife and children. Yeah, or I would you know, maybe record some stuff on this one or, or check into your fight pass later on, get, get kind of a greatest hits feel out of this one, you know, but if you don't have to sit through the entire thing, this is, this is going to be a lot of stuff that you might feel like does not exactly keep the momentum going from UFC 205. 
That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That gets you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. Uh, And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. With that, Ben, let's get into the meat of UFC 205. And I think that we all know that that means Connor motherfucking McGregor. In retrospect, Ben, I would tell you that it seems to me like it has taken me some time to come around to the greatness of Connor McGregor. For a long time after his debut in the UFC in 2013, I thought that you could make a compelling case that, while not necessarily protected per se, he had fought some good style matchups for him. You know, he had the Chad Mendez fight, which was the first time we saw him really face a noted wrestler in the UFC, and that one was on short notice. Uh, and it seemed like we hadn't really seen his entire game yet. There was reason to, to uh, doubt maybe that he was the complete package after UFC 196 when he lost the weirdo welterweight fight to Nate Diaz. Of course, came back at 202 and uh, and won the majority decision to, to get that one back in a way. In the wake of this Eddie Alvarez win, I feel like you got to throw that line of thinking out a little bit. And maybe it's still true that we have not seen Conor McGregor go out there against a Habib Nurmagomedov-style wrestler on a full training camp. But dear God, man, that left hand is crazy. And we have every reason at this point, I believe, to suspect that Conor McGregor is every damn thing he says he is. Yeah, well, well, he says he's a lot of damn things, so maybe that that would be the only impediment there. But I agree that I think it's still one of the things that we saw early on in his career, and it's really helping him now, is the combination of his great sense of and mastery of distance in these fights and the ability he has to throw that left hand with both like speed precision and also power of course like i think that that's one of the things you saw really early on in this eddie alvarez fight was as soon as alvarez made the decision to come forward hard on him the left hand just shot out like on reflex and caught him perfectly and you know even he said after he got dropped the first time where his thought was kind of what was that you know that was fast uh and that's the thing you know i think that you you and you saw it in his in the final finishing combo as well, where it's a counter to uh, Eddie Alvarez throwing and just missing Conor McGregor's nose, but he has such a good sense of where he needs to be when he's out of the range and and how he can a- attack. That was one of the things that you saw even back in the Dennis Seaver fight, you know, where that serves him really well. And if you have that kind con- of combination of things, and even a little bit of takedown defense, and if it gets a little bit better and better over time, which I think we've seen it has, then you're going to be a problem for a whole lot of people. Uh, I think, you know, you're right when you say you can look at his body of work and see some selective style matchups that he got, and especially ones that where we were told they meant something that they didn't mean. That Dennis Seaver win is a good example of that, where he was really hyped up. It was the main event of a fight night. That's what got him a title shot against Jose Aldo was a win over Dennis Seaver. Uh, and that was one where it seemed like, okay, the UFC has a plan here, and this is part of the plan. And so 
So I understand why people would then feel like, okay, but let's see him fight a wrestler. And then when he fights Mendez, gets taken down a bunch, and then knocks an exhausted Mendez out, people say, okay, let's see him fight a wrestler in a full training camp. They're going to keep doing that, and you're already seeing what people do it now. Where you And you can do it if you want to. You can look at Eddie Alvarez and say, A, he's not a big lightweight, yeah. uh, so that benefits the guy who's coming up from featherweight. And style-wise... He kind of plays into Conor McGregor's hands a lot. And the way he fought this one played even more into Conor McGregor's hands. Yeah, that was one of the things that I thought was shocking. I've been waiting a really long time for someone to kick that front leg of Conor McGregor because he uses that wide open, almost karate style stance and uses it to great effect to maintain distance and move around. But I've always kind of waited for someone to kick that front leg. And that was one of the things I thought Jose Aldo would be able to do in their fight at UFC 194. And, of course, when the fight's only 13 seconds long, uh, there ain't a lot of leg kicking going on. But when Eddie Alvarez came out of his corner with and started kicking that front leg, it, uh, I thought to myself, all right, let's see where this goes. Because that's, you know, one of the one of the, the situations where I thought people might be able to be effective against Conor McGregor in the stand-up. And then, of course... I think it was the first real significant punching exchange of the fight. Eddie Alvarez gets dropped in a way that made him look a lot like Jose Aldo yeah. when he collapsed to the canvas like someone knocked over a pile of bricks. Uh, and to Eddie Alvar Alvarez's credit, he managed to soldier on, I think, for another seven minutes or so before this thing finally ended. But there are some incredible gifts out there of this fight. And I think, you know, the four-punch combo that he uses to end the fight is obviously super impressive. But that first knockdown is also super impressive because I think that's the one where he counters Eddie Alvarez with a left and lands it and then cocks it again and throws it again. And that's the one that, that drops him to the canvas. And it all happens, you know, within a split second. Uh, when you're packing around that much power at this weight and clearly the power translated from featherweight to lightweight, uh, that makes the margin of error super, super slim for the other guy. Well, especially when you think about what Eddie Alvarez's paths to victory would have looked like. Because McGregor was basically hammering him with that left hand every time he came forward. Every time he, he took a, a hard forward step to come after McGregor, boom, the left hand was right there. Uh, and even, you know, he did the thing that he often does and that uh, kind of similar to the thing that Jose Aldo did. And when he got knocked out by McGregor, where, you know, he kind of will change levels and, and come in hard. And when he did that, it seemed like he just left himself open for the left hand. And if you're, if you're Eddie Alvarez, you probably want to get into a clinch and then get him down to the ground. And how are you going to do that if you can't come forward on the guy without eating a hard left hand that's going to stop you right in your tracks? You know, he said afterwards that he felt like he just didn't follow the game plan, that, you know, he, he should have wrestled more, he should have kicked and wrestled, and that was really what he was out there to do. I don't, maybe he should take it a little easier on himself because it's, it's one thing to say that that's what you're going to do until you can't really move forward on the guy without getting absolutely hammered. Yeah, I think last week when we talked about this fight, I said that I thought the longer that it went on that Eddie Alvarez would have the physical advantages. Uh, and it was shocking to me to see how much bigger Conor McGregor looked than Eddie Alvarez on fight night inside the cage. Uh, and, and doubly shocking to think that this was a guy who consistently makes 145 pounds, even though, uh, it seems like it's getting more and more difficult for him. And we don't know if that's a thing that he's going to do again. But Conor McGregor was clearly the bigger guy, clearly the more athletic guy, shrugged off the takedown attempts from Eddie Alvarez. Uh, fairly easily. So yeah, if you're Eddie Alvarez, man, I, I think 
if you want to fall back on the fighter platitude, like he was the better man tonight, which yeah. is the thing that other fighters or that fighters always say, I think you can do that. I think you can beat yourself up for maybe not following the game plan. But at the same time, man, I don't know how you follow the game plan against that particular uh, physical beast and against that particular style. In retrospect, even though I thought Eddie was going to have the physical advantages, I was dead wrong about that. And clearly, uh, Conor McGregor had all the physical advantages, and that left hand is like is the equalizer of all equalizers at that weight that we've seen, you know, in a long time. And now, Chad, now that Conor McGregor has won two titles and been quite adamant about receiving both belts yeah. in the octagon. Can I talk about that for a second? Because By all the, means. the thing that I wrote on Bleacher Report after this was over was that I felt like in this fight, Conor McGregor put on several facets of of what makes him great. Like, put it right on our faces. Because the first thing that obviously makes him great is his ability to win this fight. Won with, the damn fight. With that left hand. But almost as important as that, I think, are two of the things that he showed off after the fight. And that was his, like, natural ability to seize on the moment, the great moment, and to make sure that it is the moment that he wanted it to be. He's talked, obviously, in the past about The Secret, which we, you know, about... The DVD of The Secret. Yeah, the DVD of The Not Secret. the book. The Law of, uh, what's it called? Attraction. The Law of Attraction. Uh, the Power of Positive Thinking. Obviously, uh, the skeptics in us have made fun of him a little bit about that in the past. But clearly, he had visualized this moment. And when he visualized it in his own mind, he was in that cage with two belts. And when they only brought him one belt... That shit was not going to fly. No, wasn't going to let that go. But more important than that, I feel like Conor McGregor also understands the iconic nature of that moment. Yeah. And that he was like, I need both these damn belts. I need them on my shoulders. And I need to stand here and let the UFC cameras get good long shots of me standing in the cage with both these belts. And then, even though it's way after the fight and might not even make that much sense... I'm going to jump on top of the cage and hold both those belts up and let all of the uh, media photographers around the ring get all the shots they want because those are the shots that are going to sell my next fight and maybe define my entire career. Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking this too when I was uh, putting my column into our system and going through the images we had to choose one of Conor McGregor and you see it and just remarking to myself, man, he gives you an awful lot of opportunities to take these iconic photos of him. And I think that's one of the things that separates him from a lot of people is that he has this ability to really quickly and innately grasp that moment and make sure that he squeezes every drop out of it. Well, and the know, third thing I would say before we go on, the final thing that makes him great is, is, is his ability to have the political capital inside the company that, and this is a small example, but I think it's a useful metaphor. When he doesn't have that second belt, he tells the president of the company, go get me my fucking belt. And the dude does it. He goes and he goes gets, and gets Tyron Woodley's belt. <laughs> that, there's your metaphor. Yeah, if you want one, uh, he goes and he takes one from another fighter, another champion. And that is like a, a metaphor for the, both the good and the bad effects of Conor McGregor in the UFC is that. He wants what he wants, even when it screws other people over. Uh, and we've seen that a little bit in some of the other divisions or in some uh, cases, even in the lightweight division. Um, but you're right, though. You know, he remember when he made a big deal about the posters 
Yeah, um, and the belt. It was January of this year before he was supposed to fight Rafael Dos Anjos. For, at, why aren't there two belts on that post? At UFC 197, which became UFC 196, and those two guys never fought. But that was the thing I wrote about in my column for Bleacher Report was like, Conor McGregor started and ended this year basically the same way by yeah. telling the UFC to go get him his damn belt. Telling the UFC how to promote him and being right. You know, I remember, it made me think of, I remember when I was a kid uh, watching WrestleMania 6 when uh, the Ultimate Warrior beat Hulk Hogan for, to claim uh, both the Intercontinental title and the, the WW, then WWF heavyweight title. And I still, even as a grown man, now I was probably 10 years old at the time, and I still remember that image of the Warrior standing in there in the ring, holding up both belts. I even remember the WWF magazine coming out the next issue after that, the cover of it, the Ultimate Warrior standing there holding those belts. You know, capturing that moment, making sure you freeze that moment in time as an important image you're going to want in the sport. And to think that, like, they they would have missed that. Yeah. They And they would have missed it even if he, like, if he had not been willing to make quite as big a deal about it and they, they had not, you know... If he didn't have that power to basically tell them, here's what you need to do right now and make them do it, they would have missed that opportunity. Which is unthinkable, really. And that, you know, it makes you wonder, did they do it subconsciously or did they do it willfully to, to, you know, try to keep Conor McGregor inside the box that they want to keep him in? Too late. Yeah. Yeah. Much too late. And also, I, as conspiracy minded as this sport can be a lot of the time, I have a hard time believing that that's the case because Conor McGregor with those two belts in his hands on top of the cage makes you money. That right. makes you so much money that, uh, and it's not like you're going to, if you limit him to one belt, you're not going to have the problems negotiating with him. Like that's not going to, that's not going to work. Yeah. So his ability to grab onto that moment, I think, and seize it and make it happen and make it what he dreamed it to be and make it the marketable thing that he feels like it's supposed to be is kind of like Conor McGregor's UFC run in a nutshell. But now, Ben, but now Conor McGregor has these two titles. He announced after the event at the post-fight press conference that that his longtime girlfriend, Dee Devlin, they're about to have a baby. Congratulations to them. That's going to happen in May. Uh, Conor McGregor voiced some trepidation about bringing a child into this crazy media circus that he's created. Well, you should just... If you don't have a little trepidation about having a child, then you haven't thought it through all the way, I would say. Uh, so he will be gone for a while, I would think, at the beginning of the year, maybe maybe the first six months. What happens now? Because he has these two titles in what are, you know, over the last couple of years, two of the most interesting and two of the most competitive and two of the most consistently good divisions in the UFC – what do you do if your star attraction and the champion in both those weight classes is MIA? Well, not only MIA, but like he's he's announced the plan to step away for a little bit while the the baby stuff gets sorted out. He's also said that he wants an ownership stake in yeah. the UFC. And once if you again, want to fight again. In true Conor McGregor style, I think rightly and presciently was like Conan O'Brien is a part owner of the UFC. Where's my stake? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think He's in. He's put the UFC in a difficult position now because, especially if we're told that this was the biggest UFC event ever, that it smashed the previous pay per view record held by Conor McGregor. You did 17 million at the gate. You know, if you if you did beat the last, uh, the, you know, the second Nate Diaz fight, that one was said to do around 1.6, maybe a little over 1.6 million pay per view buys. So that means you're edging up towards two million on this one. Uh, which you need right about now if you're the UFC and you, you're you're the new owners and you just bought this thing. Uh, 
but also it gives him so much money that you can't really leverage him back into the cage until he wants to. If he wants to to plant his feet in the ground over this demand to have an ownership stake, and he also says he's not going to give up the featherweight belt, he's he's making so many demands that he's basically forcing you to tell him no on something, and yet he's the guy you got to keep happy and got to keep around, especially if Ronda Rousey's not going to be around very much longer, and you're in a position where you suddenly need to be very profitable, more profitable than you have ever been in order to hit these earnings goals under the new ownership. That's that's a tricky spot to be in. And it seems like he knows that they're in a tricky spot there. Like now is the time for a guy like Conor McGregor to be making what would have seemed a year ago to be like ludicrous to the point of not serious demands. Yeah. Like if he would have if if he were saying this stuff and he did kind of say stuff like this, but then it seemed more like a gimmick. Right. It seemed like Conor McGregor doing a Ric Flair gimmick. Right. If you had I mean if you had said under the Fertitta banner that you want an ownership stake like I think we all kind of rightly would have laughed at you to say it now under the WME IMG banner when they when when they just released this like ridiculous list this comical list of celebrity uh, investors quote unquote Guy Fieri's on the list yeah right? it makes sense now like it, it like to hear where we would have laughed at him a year ago he says it now I feel like we nod a little bit. And go, uh-huh, yeah, you know what? That does make sense. Tell The weekend you're going to take his share and give it to Conor McGregor or whatever. Because uh, you got to find that stake somewhere. Let's say they get it done, though, Ben. And Conor McGregor comes back, let's say, next summer, 2017. What happens? Yeah, okay. If you're Conor McGregor, what do you want? I think if you're Conor McGregor, you want something like Nate Diaz. Yeah. You know, a rubber match there. I agree. I'd say Nate Diaz at Croke Park. Sure, uh, that sounds like a real place. Uh, in the fictional country of Ireland, the big the soccer stadium they've been talking about, uh, doing an event on middle of the summer, you against Nate Diaz. That makes everybody a shitload of money. Everybody happy. Yeah, the the probably I, I it's just it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where Conor McGregor says, "All right, I'm back, and I'll tell you who I want. Give me Nurmagomedov." Yeah, that's not going to happen. I don't think that would happen for for Nurmi. I don't think it'll happen for Tony Ferguson. If you're Conor McGregor, you're constantly seeking out the biggest money fight that you can make in the UFC. And right now, I feel like that's either the trilogy fight with Nate Diaz or it's jumping up to welterweight and going after the title there, as or, ludicrous as that sounds. Or you say, you know what, give me GSP. Yeah, and or if you can get GSP back, you do that, which is, I think... McGregor versus St. Pierre, you probably smash every record you just set all over again. Uh, that seems like kind of a long shot considering how the uh, how the negotiations so far have gone between the UFC and St. Pierre. So I think your most likely outcome is the third Nate Diaz fight. But for Conor McGregor, it's just another situation where you've emerged triumphant. You have all of the uh, seemingly negotiating chips in your corner, and you have several really, really good options for another fight that is going to make you another enormous pile of money. There you go. And now all you have to worry about is the impending doom of fatherhood. Let's turn our attention now to what I think was sort of the unsung masterpiece of UFC 205, and that was the co-main event pitting uh, Tyron Woodley in the first defense of his welterweight title against Stephen the Wonder Man Thompson. A uh, little bit of everything in this one in terms of the MMA circus and bringing it to Madison Square Garden. I feel like the Wonder Man and Tyron Woodley gave, uh, you know, the hallowed sports arena its first really good, close mixed martial arts fight and then gave it 
immediately on the heels of that, a real solid taste of MMA-style controversy and just... General weirdness. General weirdness and, and incompetence. Yeah, uh, and in incompetence all the way around. It's not even just like that the judging is weird, but then you got Bruce Buffer going to go out there and read the wrong result, pulling a Steve Harvey out there. Uh, Tyron Woodley looking like he is ready to strangle Bruce yeah, Buffer on it looked, live it TV. Looked like for a second, Tyron Woodley thought they were about to take his title away from him, and he was going to murder someone. <laughs> that was amazing. Although, I'm thinking about writing a new chapter of the Dundasso manual, and that is at the end of every fight, we just ask Bruce Buffer who he thinks should win. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then that's a good opportunity to find out if he was actually paying attention or not. Um, I think... The surprising thing to me, when I heard 47-47. Times two. Yeah, and I thought, you know what? I'm with that. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. I can see how you get there mathematically. And then when I saw the scorecards, and, you know, it was only one scorecard that got there the same way I got there, which was a 10-8 in round four for Tyron Woodley, a 10-9 for him in round one, and then the other rounds, 10-9 to Stephen Thompson. That makes sense to me. That's the scorecard that makes sense. And then I see Doug Crosby, like noted uh, MMA judge screw-up Doug Crosby. He gives a 10-8 to Tyron Woodley in the first round, in which he takes Stephen Thompson down, kind of you know controls him on the ground, roughs him up on the ground, but never really comes close to finishing it, and then gives him a 10-9 in round four, the, the round where he damn near took Stephen Th- Thompson's head off in two different ways. Uh, and then the other's 10-9 for Stephen Thompson. That's one where, man, I feel like you had the right answer and we were we were willing to accept it until we made you show your work. Yeah. Uh, when I saw those scorecards that, that round one was the 10-8 round for Tyron Woodley, I, I wondered, like, maybe this person was taking notes on a separate sheet of paper. And then when they had to come back and fill out the official scorecard, they just put the 10-8 round first, uh, even though it was actually round four. And then I saw that it was Doug Crosby that filled it out. And I was like, oh, no. No, he's just, he's maybe just doing it just to fuck with us. You know what? I'll, my guess is what happened is he gave the 10-8 round in the first one, like legitimately just thought like a Tyron Woodley was that dominant. And then when he almost put Wonder Man away in the fourth round, a part of his brain said, well, I can't give him two different 10-8 rounds. Like that's kind of ridiculous. I can't give him a 10-8 round every time he yeah, does something well, good. And, you know, maybe uh, understandably since the fight was so close, you give Tyron Woodley two 10-8 rounds, suddenly, well, you get back to the to the shortcomings of the 10-point must system. Well, and you also get back to the, like, a lie we tell ourselves about the 10-point must system, which is that we're score- we're not scoring the entire fight like pride way. You know, we're, we're scoring it round to round and then doing the math at the end. But when that kind of thing is in your head that, hey, I don't want to score this one a 10-8 because of what it'll do to the overall score of the fight, then you effectively are scoring the entire fight. You know, you, you're just kind of doing it in progress. If you're, if you're taking that into account that you don't want to tip the numbers too much, instead of just looking at that one round and asking yourself, what was that score? Was that a 10-9? Was that a 10-10? Was that a 10-8? You know, if you're not doing that and it's human nature that you kind of wouldn't be doing that, then that kind of shit is going to happen. Uh, and kind of just as amazingly, the the judge who had it 48-47 uh, for Tyron Woodley, he had 10 nines all the way across the board and just gave round three to Woodley instead of to Thompson. Right, which is your standard MMA scorecard. Standard MMA scorecard, 
in a fucked up way because I, I, I honestly, I just can't see how you watch that round where he almost knocks Thompson out, then almost knocks him out again, basically, then almost chokes him out. And then finally, Thompson gets out of the choke and lands a few punches before the horn. But Jesus Christ, he, he, he damn near passed into the land of wind and ghosts during that round. And you give that the same score as a round in which Thompson lands a few more kicks. Uh, and yet I do feel like a draw is a fair result here. Yeah, and and as Dana White said afterward, who doesn't want to see that fight again? I would, you know, hashtag would watch. I will sign up to watch Tyron Woodley fight the Wonder Man again at some point down the road. Uh, can we talk about the performances of the individual fighters here? Because I think we saw a lot of both good and bad stuff from both guys. Especially, you know, Tyron Woodley comes into this fight uh, immediately on the heels of his knockout of Robbie Lawler, where I believe he set a record for the shortest uh, welterweight title fight in UFC history. Uh, and he goes out there and he puts on display um, both all of the positives and maybe some of the negatives that that we have heard and said about Tyron Woodley, you know, throughout his fighting career. You get to see uh, clearly the enormous power he has in his hands in round four, where he does uh, nearly knock the Wonder Man's head into the into the second or third row. You get to see his wrestling skills in the first round, where he successfully takes down the the amazing striker and keeps him there and and deals some good damage from the feet in his ground and pound. Uh, and you also get to see though the Tyron Woodley that kind of retreats into a shell at times, where he's content to keep his back against the cage a little bit, uh, and when he feels like he's being pressured, like. It's not like he stops fighting, but he definitely kind of retreats into neutral, I would say. Yeah, it, it does seem like at times that we saw it against Roy McDonald as well, where if you can if you can stop him from getting going, if you can stop him from building up any forward momentum on you, uh, that sometimes time and rounds will just slip away from him. And it's hard to tell exactly what's going on there with it. If he's just waiting for the an opportunity that never comes, uh, if you know you you just don't let him ever get set up and, and start to get his offense going, if that just uh, frustrates him to the point where he can't get going, he did figure it out there. Like it seemed like he was increasingly figuring out the range that he needed for that right hand, and that Wonder Man was doing him some favors in that regard that he didn't do in some of the earlier rounds. Um, and then you go into that fifth round and you're just thinking, does he not realize how close it might be here? Uh, cause the, the urgency you would have expected to see from Woodley just wasn't really there in the fifth round. Yeah. And Stephen Thompson clearly turned it on in that fifth round and, and kind of clearly won it just to make things even more interesting heading to the, to the scorecards, uh, from the wonder man at the same time, like this, this is clearly a fight where he had tremendous moments, uh, you know, stunned Woodley at least once, I think, with a couple of punches. Uh, but also maybe we saw some of the holes in his game didn't look tremendously dangerous or efficient off his back, either at threatening with submissions or, you know, with his ability to get back up to his feet. Uh, he also kind of didn't always control the distance in the way that he needed to to be effective with his long-range strikes, although I think in a 25-minute fight, there's bound to be lapses in that Uh and then, you know, also showed off a, a tremendous uh, ability to survive in that fourth round when it looked like he was going to get KO'd and then when it looked like he was going to get choked out. Uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, there's several points in there where you think he's done. He's got to be done. And he's not. Yeah, I, I will say as an aside, 
although I thought that the UFC broadcast team was okay for, for much of UFC 205, and I don't like to pile on the MMA broadcasters because I feel like it's just it's too easy of a thing to do all the time. But both in the women's strawweight fight when Joanna Jacek beat Karolina Kovalkiewicz and then in this welterweight fight where Tyron Woodley beat Stephen Thompson, I felt like the broadcast team had done the thing where they decided who was doing the best and then decided just to kind of... Uh, stay on that person's side of the entire time of the fight. And especially yeah. it was evident during that fourth round when Tyron Woodley almost won the damn thing. Uh, and maybe this is understandable from like a broadcasting standpoint, but like all they were talking about was Stephen Thompson's ability to survive. It reminded me of when Rashad Evans won, you know, season two of the ultimate fighter against, uh, what was it, Brad Imes, the, the hillbilly heartthrob. Uh, and that was a fight that Rashad Evans dominated and almost knocked him out. And, and whenever it is in the fight that he knocks Brad Imes down and Brad Imes essentially gets saved by the bell, Mike Goldberg is like, and Brad Imes survives to the next round. It's sort of like, yeah, he, he survives. But like the guy who was doing awesome was the other guy. Like maybe we should talk about him a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I mean, I understand. I think you do see it in fights like that, uh, and Jacek fight where, you know, the, it, it it's a decision that happens kind of subconsciously early on and then infects the entire fight. This one, though, I think that Thompson's ability to survive that was kind of superhuman because he looks like, you know, when he gets dropped and he tries to get back up and he's getting just hammered and you look at it and you're like, well, he's one or two punches away from having this thing stopped. It seems like it could be stopped at any moment and nobody could really complain about it. And then when he gets locked up in that choke, you think, okay, well, now he's screwed here. Um you know, that is some kind of amazing resiliency, especially because how many times have we seen a dude get so badly rocked uh, and be trying to do something to kind of stem that that tide and put his head right into a guillotine. And by the time, you know, your your woozy brain gets around to thinking about a defense, it's too late. Let's talk about what happens now. I guess you do this thing again, brother, which is bad news for Damian Maya, <laughs> ultimately, which I know probably breaks your heart. Uh, but, you know, you got a draw in a title fight. Well, man, when I heard uh, Cowboy Cerrone talking about how he wants to fight Demi Maya, I thought, all right, well, there's one that could keep us busy if if we were so inclined at some point at a later date. Um, but yeah, I, I guess you got to go ahead and make this one again. Uh, I just, I wonder if, okay, so if UFC 205 was a huge pay-per-view and just millions of people saw it, does that mean you get a boost at all when you rebook this one? probably as a pay-per-view headliner and you don't have Conor McGregor around to help out or are you back to doing, you know, 300,000 pay-per-view buys with this? Yeah, that's a really good question. And a question I probably don't have an answer for a question. None of us have an answer for clearly. We know, uh, the one Achilles heel maybe of this Tyron Woodley title reign has been people saying that, that he doesn't have a, a following of people that are going to, you know, buy his pay-per-view events. He's not going to be a particularly, uh, a successfully marketable UFC champion. Uh, and I think people were kind of, uh, putting some hope in Steven Thompson to maybe be one of the, the new stars of the WME IMG led UFC era. Uh, and maybe people who saw both these guys at UFC 205 follow them to whatever the next pay-per-view is. But, uh, so far it kind of seems like that, that sort of thing is a myth to me. So, I mean, I don't know that clearly you have like star making performances and stuff like that, but I feel like more often than not, when you have a pay-per-view that is very top heavy in terms of its appeal, like most people 
Clearly, all of the extra people who bought this to break the UFC pay-per-view record did so to see Conor McGregor. And I don't know how many of those people would follow, you know, Tyron Woodley or Joanna Yedjaychik or any of these other people to the next pay-per-view. Although maybe what you got is a bunch of people who don't really watch the sport. Their friends said, hey, there's a big fight tonight. They showed up at his house, you know, ate some pizza, drank a couple beers. Uh, watched the fight, said, whoa, this shit is awesome. When's the next one? They yeah. said, next Saturday. It's Bader versus Roger Nog 2. <laughs> Buckle in, motherfucker. Uh, you know, in a weird way, I feel like that that kind of attention can benefit somebody like Habib Nurmagomedov in a kind of a strange way. Cause I feel like if you're a dude who shows up to watch UFC 205 and you don't know that much about MMA, you watch Habib like brutalize Michael Johnson on the ground. If you and, showed up in time for the prelims, right? Which you probably, maybe you did. Maybe there was going to be pizza rolls or something or, 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 yeah. you know, chicken wings. I was told there would be pizza rolls. Uh, and then you see McGregor knock out Alvarez. Maybe you walk away from this pay-per-view, even though you have a limited understanding of the landscape of the sport being like, I want to see Connor fight that Russian dude. Like that dude was amazing on the ground. So like, even though you don't really understand the sport, maybe you walk away with this idea of Habib Nur- Nurmagomedov as this, you know, uh, beast on the ground who might have something for McGregor. It's a, the, who may or may not be a chicken. That's right. Who wants to fight your chicken? Uh, before we wrap up the show, Ben, I insist that we talk about Yoel Romero. <laughs> of course you do. In a weird way, I came out of this pay-per-view feeling like Yoel Romero was like the third most interesting thing that happened after, you know, Woodley versus Thompson and Conor McGregor uh, just dusting Eddie Alvarez. I guess you're putting it right in Yoanny and Jacek's face there. Well, no. I mean, Yoanny and Jacek. Like, the thing with her against Karolina Kovalkiewicz is that she did the thing that she does, right? Like, she just beat the tar out of Kovalkiewicz on the feet, even though, like, Kovalkiewicz was arguably uh, her most competitive matchup. I still feel like at the end of the day, we come away from it like, okay, Joanna Yajajic, dominant strawweight champion, uh, total nails on the feet. You're just not going to you, – you can't fuck with her there. Well, she did get dropped. She did get hit with a pretty good shot here. I don't know if she necessarily dominated this entire fight. I think that she – controlled a lot of the early stuff and i think kovalkiewicz kind of figured some stuff out late in the fight also i'm amazed at kovalkiewicz's ability to wear damage like it's nothing like how many times did she just get jacked in the face super hard and you saw her at the end look like she was going dancing like you didn't see hardly a mark on her and the, you look at yuana and Jacek's face and she's lumped up something serious the best thing about carolina kovalkiewicz is the way the completely unperturbed and unconcerned expression on her face where she leans against the cage between rounds and between fights with one arm behind her back like she's smoking a cigarette outside a dance club <laughs> she's, a, she's somewhere on, in Poland. She's on break from her job yes, at Subway. Ex- exactly. Thinking about the existential despair. And yeah, I mean, this is a good and competitive fight, and I know I, I feel where you're coming from with it, but at the same time, I feel like we emerge from it with, with the same narrative about Joanna Yedjechik. And you want to get back to UL Romero. That we've had all along. And his sexy, sexy dance. And that is that Joanna Yedjechik is going to buy a shitload of stuff at the Disney store tomorrow with that window. <laughs> she's going to get tons of new goofy shirts uh, and probably some retro sneaks. Yeah, going to go get around some Poland kicks. on her cruiser bike. Yeah. So can we talk about Yoel Romero All right, now? Let's who get to the soldier like of dog. Sounds like a goddamn cartoon monster that's been eating glass when he gets on the <laughs> mic after it's over. <laughs> that was unbelievable. And I love, you know, that's one where you do see the UFC is when when it wants to be kind of adept at the whole visual storytelling thing cuz you got Michael Bisping up in the rafters up high above the arena 
making a series of gestures, some of them lewd and, and otherwise. And all of them awesome. <laughs> As Yuel Romero taunts him from inside the cage, uh, just sounding like a Bond villain for much of it. Also, after... Bis- well, hold on. Bisping versus Romero is two Bond villains squaring off. <laughs> is it not? <laughs> well, I mean, Bisping is British like James Bond. He, he was wearing yeah, a suit he's, at he's the time. The, like, Bisping is not the good guy in the James Bond movie. In, Come on. In the James Bond movie that plays in Michael Bisping's head, he is the only good guy. We are all the heroes of our own story, sir. Um, but after seeing what Yuel Romero did to Chris Weidman, and again, you want to talk about somebody doing the thing they do, this is Yuel Romero going out there at times looking a little lackadaisical. Uh, and then in brief bursts being fucking brilliant, um, both in that, like, you know, takedown he pulls to take Chris Weidman's back in the second round. And then between the second and the third, his corner tells him, you know what? You probably don't want to go to a decision on this one. Uh, and so 24 seconds later, he is landing a jumping knee that knocks all the blood out of Chris Weidman's head. And that's basically it. Like that is UL Romero in a nutshell can pull off dazzling moves, uh, in just brief bursts. And sometimes those brief bursts will knock your goddamn head off. Yeah. I also enjoyed the, the gif of UL Romero kneeing Chris Weidman in the face and then Chris Weidman kneeing himself in the face as he collapsed, and then Yoel Romero kneeing Chris Weidman in the back of the head as he came down. So it was like three knees for the price of one, which is <laughs> outstanding. It's weird, and you know, you, like you just said, Yoel Romero has this ex- in extremely unorthodox style, and it's weird now to look at his UFC career where he lost his last fight in strike force to, to uh, Rafael Cavalcante. Then he shows up in the UFC and his first KO over Clifford Starks is in the first round. But if you look at it from there, all of his stoppage wins are third rounders where he does this thing where it does seem like at times he's coasting. And in fact, in that Derek Brunson fight was probably behind on the scorecards and ends up getting a TKO win, like or that Tim Kennedy one where he almost got knocked over and then does the same thing at the beginning of the third round to Tim Kennedy at UFC 178. Uh, and then does the same damn thing to Chris Weidman in this fight where it seemed kind of like Chris Weidman was, was on his way to a win here, like coasting towards a win. And then Yoel Romero just has this magical ability to make me yell what the hell just happened in my own living room when, all types of fucking blood are coming out of Chris Weidman's head. <laughs> um, and then you are forced to think about a potential UL Romero-Michael Bisping matchup. Yes. Um, if not forced, like, exalt in the potential <laughs> of a Michael Bisping-UL Romero fight. You know, and I say this as someone who has no particular fondness or affection for Michael Bisping, but that makes me worried for him. Because that feels like a fight that ends badly for Michael Bisping almost every time. Yeah, uh, I you know, given the way this show has gone, we rolled right through probably the normal part of the show where we would have done Are You Fucking Kidding Me Without Doing It. I don't know if we will do Just Sand Stuff before we wrap up. But my Just Sand Stuff was going to be about my own internal crisis about whether or not Michael Bisping is Chad Dundas' favorite middleweight champion of all time, which is shocking to come around to. But, like, that's the... That's the feeling I'm left with when Bisping is standing at the top of the arena 
flipping Yoel Romero off, giving him the thumbs down, and then pretending to inject himself in his own ass with <laughs> like with steroids, as if to say, "We all know what you're up to, Yoel." Uh, and meanwhile, the Cookie Monster is down there in the in the middle of the <laughs> ring, like making s- threats of ser- of grievous bodily harm, which is. Jesus, man, just take my money already. Christ. <laughs> but no, you're right. We come away from this fight thinking if that's the next thing that happens, Yoel Romero is basically already the champ, right? I mean, it feels like at this point we we underestimate Bisping at our peril because we never thought he'd get this far. We never thought he'd be middleweight champ, and here he is. And yet the kind of asterisks that you can place next to some of his recent victories if you want to – um, plus just the way you see this style matchup going, you give Michael Bisping not a whole lot of chance of putting a guy like Yoel Romero away, right? Doesn't seem like he goes out there and knocks him out. Doesn't seem like he submits him. Right. At the same time, though, and again, in a 25-minute fight, maybe things are different, but the thing that we just described about what Yoel Romero does where, like, he comes out in this third round and crafts a an amazing explosive knockout. Like if you're Michael Bisping, maybe you just got to steer clear of that, right? Like, oh yeah. Oh, maybe so, it's so that's not, all you have to do is not get knocked out. Yes. Not okay. get terribly knocked out, uh, in the manner of Chris. Hold Lyman, on. I'm, where I'm you write yourself down. in your own goddamn face <laughs> on the way to the ground. Uh, but at the same time, like, I guess if you're Michael Bisping, this is just another Michael Bisping fight, right? You stay on your, on your bicycle, you stick and move, you try to like, uh, befuddle Yoel Romero with your pace, which is maybe a thing you can do since Yoel Romero does not always seem like he's in shape to go uh, pedal to the metal for 15 minutes. Uh, But again, man, you might want to go eighties movie uh, zany kid style and put a lawnmower engine on that bicycle. (laughs) If you got to be five rounds in there with Yoel Romero. But then again, maybe if you're Michael Bisping, this is exactly what you need in order to legitimize your UFC middleweight title reign. Because right now, people are looking at you saying, we think you got lucky against Luke Rockhold. You picked a fight with the oldest motherfucker in the division uh, for your first title defense. And even that, you barely got away with. Uh, almost got knocked out in that one. You got to fight a real middleweight contender. Here is one who just convinced us that he is utterly terrifying. If you go out there and you manage to beat him and beat him at least semi-convincingly, then everybody's got to shut up. Then everybody's got to just start treating you like you're the real regular champion of the middleweight division. They can't really say anything else about it. I mean, they're still going to want to see you fight Jacare and, and Rockhold and all, all the rest of them, but they can't act like you don't deserve it after that. Or, or, and I saw a lot of people joking about this on Twitter, but maybe if you're Michael Bisping, the thought of a Yoel Romero fight prompts you to furiously start texting George St. Pierre. About <laughs> come on, man. When, when, he, when he, he's going to come back and save you from this terrible fate. Uh, I'm excited to see it, though, man. Honestly, like, I'm jacked up about the idea of uh, Michael Bisping versus Yoel Romero. George, OMG. Let's be serious, George. Is there anything else you want to say? Up should, we, should we do? You want to do in a weird, uh, just to turn it on its head? Do you want to do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll get out of here for okay, this week. Why not? Uh, Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, Chad, you might have noticed that at the UFC 205 weigh-ins, we brought out UFC women's bantamweight champion uh, Amanda Nunes and Ronda Rousey. I did notice the that. The prodigal daughter returns. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they had themselves one of those little mean little face-offs. Uh, and then they, you know, they go to do a thing where they stand and face the crowd. And Dana White, from the beginning, is holding on to Ronda Rousey's sleeve. Like like I do to my daughter when she is trying to wander into traffic, uh, he just he, he won't let go of that. 
And then they, Joe Rogan comes over to interview Amanda Nunes, and it looks clear that they're going to do a thing where they interview both of them. And Ronda Rousey just storms off, um, is not having that, and does not participate in that at all. And everybody leads to a lot of people saying, like, okay, well, maybe she doesn't really want to be back here. Maybe she's just not doesn't care enough to, to play along. Dana White's explanation for that after UFC 205, quote, my production guy screwed that thing up. It made Ronda look bad again like she just stormed off. They were not supposed to do an interview. They were supposed to go out there, square off, and they were both supposed to walk away. So I guess I'm just saying, are you fucking kidding me? Another one blamed on the guy in the truck, huh? The guy in the truck just screws up everything. Are you fucking kidding me, guy in the truck? <laughs> Either you need to be fired or, and here I'm just throwing out ideas, they need to give you a pay raise for being such a consistent whipping boy whenever some shit goes wrong. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, I know you saw this this week that uh, your boy Nate Diaz crashed the Conor McGregor after party oh, yeah. following UFC 205, uh, to which I say, are you fucking kidding me? Like, that's awesome. And I feel like Conor McGregor, never have I been more convinced that Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz were absolutely made for each other. And we should not waste time just letting them fight each other one more time because showing up at another, like, if the roles were reversed, you can totally see Conor McGregor showing up at another dude's after party just to style and profile on him. So Nate Diaz showing up in his leather jacket with an American flag stitched to the arm which I find to be a surprising fashion accessory for Nate Diaz to have that jacket. I wouldn't have, wouldn't have pegged him as a leather jacket guy. But maybe he rides a motorbike, man. I, I don't I, know. I would have said hoodie. Hoodie yeah. with the American flag stitched on it. But then you go to the East Coast in November, maybe you got you to gotta get some, some cold weather gear on. I mean, you kind of just McGregor'd McGregor showing up at his, <laughs> at his own victory party. Are you fucking kidding me? I feel like that's awesome. Anyway, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week, I guess, to break down all of the stuff that happens at these two UFC events Oh God! on Saturday and then look forward to the next UFC event that's the next Saturday and, and just... So for people who are looking for a CME podcast to skip... Wait, ho, hold on. Sometimes those are the best ones. When? When are those ever the best ones? It just ones? gives us a lot of freedom to talk about whatever we want to. Sometimes no. the cards that look the worst on paper... <laughs> No, that's are the not, ones that deliver. That doesn't work here. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. But see, what I wonder is, you go to Conor McGregor's after party, right? Yep. You show up there. What do you feel like? What do you order to drink there? Because you you know you're there. You're making a scene. Do you want something that you can throw easily? Like something, you know, like maybe like a little, like something where people are going to realize that you're throwing a drink in the guy's face. Maybe a vodka cranberry so it really shows up. Uh, do you go beer bottle in case you have to go upside somebody's head with it? Do you just go straight champagne bottle like you're fucking 50 cents? See, I think Nate Diaz from, uh, from like a tactical standpoint would probably go beer bottle. He, let's be honest, he knows his way around a nightclub. We assume. We assume. Well, and Nate Diaz strikes